Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I would encourage you um, that uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper uh, at the end of our service. And so if you've not picked up your elements, um, now's the time to do that, or at least sometime before the end. You don't have to announce when it is or do it when I say to do it. But uh, if you want to, uh, if you're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper uh, later on, you'll need to be uh, grabbing those elements. Um, if you will open your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be uh, covering um, several different passages and uh, not in depth for any given passage necessarily, uh, but we are discussing today the topic of elders. And um, so to that end, let me go ahead and read for us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's a great passage here on the qualification uh, for overseers, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning and we celebrate the fact that we get to do that. We get to join together. We get to lift up uh, your name in praise and song in prayer. We get to uh, fellowship together. We get to sit under the teaching of your word, and uh, we do these things as worship to you, declaring that you are worthy of our time. You are worthy of uh, our lives. We we praise you for what you have done for us in Christ and redeeming us. We praise you that you have put your Holy Spirit to live within us. We praise you that you have placed us within the body of Christ, and we are a local expression of uh, the body of Christ gathered together this morning. We praise you that we can. Father, we ask for your blessing on our time as we have your word open and as we look at a number of different verses on the topic of elders and how you would have your church to be uh, governed and shepherded. We, we seek to learn from you uh, this morning. And so we ask that you would be at work in, in us by your Holy Spirit even as your word is proclaimed this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few months ago, uh, actually it was back in January, I couldn't remember uh, when it was, so I had to look it up, but back in January we talked about the church and some church essentials. We talked about church leadership and elders, and we talked about deacons and how that all works together. And um, the reason at that time was because we were we were seeing the trajectory of really world history and and uh, the history of our nation, kind of the way our culture is going, and we realized that there's a, a going to be a growing need that Christians recognize for the church. 
that there will become a greater and greater distinction between uh, the culture and the church, and Christians will gravitate towards the church and uh, and God's people, the teaching of God's word, and so we will um, uh, value the church more and more. And so back in January, we sought to understand how uh, the church is has been designed uh, to function. And the fact is that God has redeemed uh, for himself a people from every tribe and and people and tongue and nation. He's formed them into a kingdom. And uh, he calls us priests to our God, as we saw in Revelation chapter 5. And uh, that description and many other descriptions in the New Testament seem to imply organization. And so we uh, when we go to passages like this, we are not surprised to see that there is organization within the church. I run into many people who who say they love Jesus, who say they they love God, uh, but they're, they're just not really into organized religion, and uh, and that always concerns me because when you talk about uh, those who have been redeemed in the New Testament, they are gathered together and organized in religion. <laughs> and so there's a difficulty when uh, when we say we're not into organized religion. God has given us uh, the church as uh, the body of Christ gathered together and there's organization, leadership, etc. on how that, um, how that plays out. Well, that was back in January. We talked about that. Uh, but we announced just last week that we've been considering a new candidate for uh, eldership, and that's Stephen Duarte. And um, so many of you know him. Most of you know him. If you don't know him, get to know him today, okay? Because probably everybody knows him. Um, but he's, uh, he's, he's one we've been considering uh, for the office of elder. Um, and we don't often make changes to the elder board. It's a, we're, we're a relatively slow-moving group, and we don't add and subtract people from the elder board very often, and so uh, it seemed like it would be a fitting time for us to talk about eldership again, since this is one of those rare times when uh, we are considering adding someone to uh, the elder board. And so what we're going to do today is look at uh, the biblical teaching on the topic of elders and overseers and how that relates, and then we want to turn and look at how we as a church are attempting to obey those uh, principles that we find in Scripture. So we're going to look at Scripture and we're going to look at our own practice and how we do that. And so you have an outline in your bulletin. It's a much simpler outline than normal. Uh, just a few questions and uh, we're going to work through those questions. So the first question we're going to look at is, what do we consider an elder to be? What is the role of elder? Uh, what what do we consider an elder to be? Well, uh, if, you, if you think of uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, um, you you will notice that uh, Paul, writing there to the church at Philippi, says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So he's describing there, uh, in, in very rough outline, the concept that you have saints there at the church, and you have overseers and you have deacons. And so those are kind of the categories. So an elder is a part of the organization of the church. And, uh, and so that's a, a very basic kind of notion there. But uh, the question is then what, what more does he do? Um, and uh, we, we see secondly that an elder provides oversight for the church. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Well, the word shepherd, and here it's a verb uh, to, to shepherd someone, is the same notion as to pastor someone. And a shepherd in the Bible is sometimes translated as pastor. 
it's the same word and it's the same notion. So it's a it's a shepherding uh, thing here. But but notice how Peter puts it in First Peter chapter five. He says exercising oversight. So what does a shepherd do? He's to shepherd the flock, and what's involved in that? Well, he's exercising oversight, meaning. He's, he's viewing what's going on and he's kind of giving direction and, and, and he's, uh, he's taking care of issues that come up and, and the care of the church in general. So there's, there's oversight. There's a, a watching over what is going on, giving direction, etc. In uh, Acts chapter 20, we have a great section in, uh, in that passage where Paul is traveling by Ephesus and he calls the Ephesian elders to him and they meet together and they talk on the beach and they're, they're uh, uh, discussing... Um, you know, Paul is uh, encouraging them and, and challenging them and teaching them, etc. And in that passage, he says to this group of elders from this church, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So you've got a couple of different ideas going on there. You've got, you've got the notion, uh, first of all, that that um, the, the elders are to watch over themselves or to watch over the entire flock, uh, the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So it's a recognition by Paul talking to these elders that, it, that uh, however the process happened, that these particular elders were, uh, were selected in their church, etc., that ultimately it was the Holy Spirit who put them there. So these elders he's talking to, those are the ones that the Holy Spirit put in place uh, as overseers in that congregation. <clears throat> and secondly, he's made you overseers. Again, that same notion of watching over to care for the church of God. So God has arranged it in such a way that uh, he, has, he has organized oversight of the church in such a way that it's put into the hands of elders whose job it is to do that, whose task it is, whose responsibility and joy it is in the congregation to watch and care for, to oversee, to minister to uh, the congregation. So there's an oversight that goes with it. And then there's also a, a shepherding leadership of the church. You've got a, a notion that it's not just some CEO uh, uh, changing, you know, the structure of the church and, and uh, uh, the reporting structures and, and doing these kind of, you know, uh, administrative tasks only. There are certainly administrative tasks connected with um, being an elder at a church and how a church runs and all that kind of stuff. There's certainly administrative tasks, but there's more of an emphasis in the New Testament on a shepherding kind of leadership. There's a relationship uh, that it's not just oversight and directing an organization, a group of people to accomplish tasks or something like that, uh, but it's much more relational, kind of like a relationship um, uh, that's that's more personal, like a shepherd with sheep and, and all of that. And so there's a shepherding leadership for the church. And uh, uh, the author to the Hebrews in uh, chapter 13 and verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So there's a, there's a relationship that's much more beyond just some organizing or something. There's a, there's a keeping watch over souls. And I hear, I hear wise pastors, you know, talk about uh, when they get together for pastors conferences or, or different things like that. There's uh, very often discussion about, oh, how big's your church? How many do you have coming? And things like that. And and the wiser, older pastors will tend to say, you know, however many you have coming, that will be enough to answer for before God. 
If it's 20 people, that's 20 people that you will give an answer for before God. If it's 2,000, that's how many you'll give an answer for. And so there's this close relationship, there's this responsibility that goes right down to the soul level. It's not just running things, and it's not just doing stuff like that. It is a shepherding kind of responsibility, a shepherding kind of relationship. And in First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul says to Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Right? So there's a ruling aspect of uh, this, uh, this ministry, this position of elder, of overseer. By the way, I'm, I'm using those terms, and you'll, you'll notice I will use them completely interchangeably. And I believe that's the way the New Testament does. When we talk about a pastor, that word doesn't occur often in the New Testament. Uh, but overseer and elder, those occur quite a bit. And when they are used, it seems to me that they are used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. They mean the same person. It's not a different uh, office, a different level, a different uh, uh, area of responsibility or anything like that. Those are, uh, I'm, I'm intending to use those term, uh, terms simultaneously. So don't, don't have a, a category on one side where you've got, okay, he's saying this about elders and he's saying this over here about overseers or something. I mean them to be synonymous because I think that's what the New Testament, uh, how the New Testament uses them. And he says in, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5 and verse 17 that there is uh, a ministerial uh, aspect, there's a ruling aspect that goes on, and that is carried out by preaching and teaching primarily. And so you see that that is, uh, that is the case, that uh, for many of you, the, the most frequent that you see me or see Woody is when we're here in a preaching and teaching context. That's a large portion of the leadership of the church more on that later. Uh, but I will, I will note that uh, a pastor is an elder, as we use it. An elder is a pastor. Those terms are synonymous, the way we use them. And uh, there are titles that are given, and sometimes we talk about the elders, sometimes we talk about the pastors, and sometimes it's just us not being super careful about the way we use the language, because we have three elders, which means we have three pastors. But in some conversation, you will come to find out that actually only Woody and I work at the church. We're the only two elders who are on staff at the church, and so sometimes it's simpler to say that we are the pastors and Chris is the elder or an elder. But in reality, what we're trying to indicate when we, when we talk like that is just that Chris has a job elsewhere. His, his paycheck doesn't come from the church, and he doesn't keep offices, uh, office hours here in the church. He's, he's a lay elder exactly on the same uh, par as far as responsibility, authority, or anything like that as, as Woody or me. Uh, but sometimes it's, it's helpful for people when they ask, who's the pastor? And that's a little bit of a confusing conversation because we've got three, uh, but sometimes we talk about the two pastors who are staff uh, elders. But our responsibility, uh, purview, etc., cetera, is, is, um, is on par with one another. Obviously, uh, Woody and I do the bulk of the preaching, uh, that's explained, you know, by the fact that Chris has a job elsewhere and it takes a lot of time to prepare. And so he preaches sometimes, but not a lot. Um, and that's uh, that's just kind of the way we've arranged things. But he's a pastor. Uh, he's an elder. We are pastors. We are elders on par with one another. There's no uh, distinction intended in that regard. All right. So that's, uh, that's what we consider an elder to be. The question uh, number two there is, whom do we consider for the position? 
Whom do we consider for the position of elder? Well, first of all, in a very unpopular fashion, we consider a man for the position. That's not uh, that's not common today. That's uh, becoming less and less common. It's uh, less and less politically correct for sure. But uh, when we look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 6 in our passage here, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, it talks about an elder, the person you're considering being the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Okay? It doesn't, it doesn't just say uh, someone who is, you know, uh, faithful to their spouse. They, they could say that also, but it says a one-woman man, right? And so you have, you have the notion that this uh, person, this candidate, will be the husband of one wife. Um, and secondly, one of the main roles, as we've already looked at and we'll continue to look at, one of the main roles of an elder is to teach and to exercise authority, right? Those are the very things that Paul forbids women to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So those very main primary responsibilities that elders have of preaching and teaching, of exercising authority, those are reserved for men alone. And that is God and his wisdom who has decided to do that. That's God and his wisdom who has instructed that way in his word. And so we will seek to uh, obey that. And so the pattern in the Bible uh, that we see also is that elders are men. The descriptions of the character traits are descriptions of men. And women are forbidden to perform the elders' primary functions over men. And so we conclude that an elder is to be a man. And I'm sorry to have to go on so long about this, but I guarantee that somewhere in your, uh, in your own past, somewhere in your own thinking, somewhere in your own um, connections, there are those who very, very strongly disagree with that. Think that's simply old-fashioned, that, uh, that is, is bigoted or something for churches to continue to hold to this. But we see it taught in God's Word. Our responsibility is to, uh, to believe and to obey and to teach God's Word. And so we seek to do that. So the first qualification, uh, whom do we consider for the position? A man. Secondly, a man of character. First Timothy chapter 3, when we read through these verses, there were quite a few uh, character traits listed in here that are pretty profound. And that if we wanted to, we could develop this into a couple of sermons. I won't do that, but we could develop it into a couple of sermons to talk more specifically about what all is involved in these character traits. But even just reading through it, we can see that the standard is high. The standard reaches into relationships, into personal life, into business dealings, into personal discipline, right? An overseer must be above reproach, verse 2 of First Timothy 3. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, so not just given to flights of fancy, going to run off and, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat and try something new that's going to be crazy, and you know, or either in his personal life or as a church or whatever. Sober-minded, meaning that thinking things through, being cautious, careful, self-controlled, right? Not just given to flying off the handle uh, emotionally in some way. I feel like doing this, so I'm going to go do that, right? I'm going through a midlife crisis, so I'm going to buy a Lamborghini or, or whatever, right? That would be uh, self-control as, as well as in many other areas of life, whether sexually or whether in other kinds of business dealings, uh, finances, or all kinds of ways in the home, outside the home. 
He used to be self-controlled. He used to be respectable. He used to be hospitable, right? Having people in his home, willing to offer up his, his, own, uh, his own living arrangements to help other people out, to bless other people, to be hospitable, able to teach. We'll come back to that. Not a drunkard. So exercising self-control in regard to alcohol, things like that. Not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Right? If I, if I show up Sunday after Sunday with a black eye and a broken nose, right? You're going to start asking me questions like, what, what are you doing? Like, have you joined Fight Club or something? And, and uh, then I would have to not talk about that apparently, but. Sorry, some of you got that. I, I apologize. I, I apologize. I probably should never have seen that movie. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Back on track, Brennan, back on track. Not quarrelsome, right? Picking fights. Maybe not even physically, but just always seeking to argue, always seeking to nitpick, always seeking to, you know, to find problems. Someone who's quarrelsome, they're always in, involved in a quarrel and, and picking fights and things like that. Not a lover of money, right? You can be a lover of money and be poor, by the way. You're just loving something you don't have. <laughs> or you can be rich and love money. You're loving all the money that you have, right? So the, the temptation is there in an equal fashion for those with money, for those without money. Not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, right? So there's a microcosm of the elder's family that puts on display his leadership, his shepherding, right? He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? But the church is not a categorically different thing than the family. It's a larger version, right? It's the macrocosm. And so you can look at a person's family, you can see how he raises his kids, how he treats his wife, what his relationship is. In that context, you can get a good picture for what it's going to be like in the church. What kind of leadership will he provide or not provide? Is he is he bitter and cruel? Is he angry? Is he distant? Is he is he just permissive? Uh, how is how is he with his family? That's how he's going to be at the church most likely. Not a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit, fall into the condemnation of the devil, right? So not just someone who happens to be really smart or gifted as a speaker or something, and he gets saved, and just a few months later we think, that's the guy we need up front, because he's, he's better looking, he's a better talker, and he's, he makes really great presentations, and, and uh, seems to be growing fine in his Christian life, so we'll just make him an elder, right? No, we don't, we don't do that. We don't throw someone into the mix who is a new believer uh, because um, of the, the condemnation of the devil, right? Pride. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So it's not just how does this person interact with other Christians, because I can put on a smiley face with other Christians, right? But then in my business dealings, maybe I'm cutthroat, right? Maybe, maybe all the business, uh, business owners in town know, don't do anything with that guy. He'll cheat you, he'll, he'll shortchange you, he'll, he'll fight you the whole way or whatever, right? So there's a, there's a relationship not just where we know we're being watched as Christians, we're supposed to behave when we're together. I have a tie on today. I don't wear a tie any other day of the week, right? I'm acting like a Christian before Christians. But what about in the in the real world? What about out there in my other dealings, right? Do my neighbors uh, have a poor opinion of me because I'm always yelling at my kids or kicking the dog, right? That kind of stuff. I, I do my best not to kick the dog, okay? I don't, I don't kick the dog. That's just a joke. That's just a joke. 
All right, so a man of character, and uh, thirdly, so first of all, he's a man. Second of all, a man of character. Thirdly, a man of proven track record. Right, as we read through this, a, a person doesn't, um, you know, he doesn't get saved. He's got three kids in the home. You know, he's, he's, he's got this, you know, uh, he, he's been married to his wife for 10, 15 years. He just becomes a Christian and whatever, right? It takes a while for you to begin to see godly marriage, godly parenting, godly relationships, that maturity that, that you can see uh, over a period of time. And that's, that seems to be the direction that a lot of these point. is not just, hey, can he say smart things? Did he read everyone's a theologian and can tell you the answers? That's great. You should all read everyone's a theologian and be able to tell me the answers, right? But that doesn't, that doesn't equate with maturity. Well, can he get up and speak and make a, you know, he can, he can keep his sermon to 45 minutes like that other pastor can't, right? No, that's not one of the qualifications, though. Some of you might like that. Um, there's, we're talking about maturity. We're talking about something over the course of time, right? You will begin to see godly parenting evidenced after years of parenting the children. You will see a, a, a marriage built upon grace over time. You're not going to see that uh, quickly, right? You're going to see these aspects of maturity that have developed uh, over time. So a proven track record, a proven track record with his family, right? He's got to manage his own household well for Timothy uh, three, four, um, a proven track record with the outside world. He's going to be well thought of by outsiders, right? So that's proven track record. You don't just start a business and have a good reputation, right? It takes a while, right? And so we're talking about a proven track record. In short, we're talking about a man of spiritual maturity, a man of spiritual maturity, not perfection. That doesn't exist, but a man of spiritual maturity, and so that, that, if we summarize what we read there in, in Titus chapter 1 and here what we read in 1 Timothy 3 and in some other places, uh, that's, that's the sum total. A person, a man who is genuinely spiritually mature. And one qualification, who is able to teach. He is a man who is apt to teach. He is a teacher. He's, a, he's given to teaching. He's, he's able to teach, right? It's the only qualification uh, the, the only skill that uh, that is listed in First Timothy chapter three, but it involves more than just the ability to speak publicly, right? They uh, often, you know, when you know, maybe when you think about what it takes to get up and preach and all those kinds of things, the part of it is the ability to speak sentences from beginning to end for the most part without too many stumbles, etc., and be able to give a presentation, communicate a thought from beginning to end in a meaningful fashion, right? And, and whether that's in a Sunday school class, whether that's in a sermon, but, but that is not the entirety of the ability to teach. That's the ability to communicate, the ability to, to speak, which is a good thing, right? That's, a, that's an important thing, but that's not the, that's not the, uh, the entirety of it. If you'll flip over to, to, to uh, Titus chapter 1, and uh, verse 9, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, we have a similar list here going in, in uh, chapter 1 verses 5 and following a similar list to, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, slightly different in some ways, but not significantly. Uh, but uh, the way he words it here in verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Right? So you've got more than just he can speak in front of people, he doesn't get too nervous or, or communicate it. he can communicate a thought from beginning to end. It's something more than that. First of all, he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught. So his own personal doctrine needs to be biblical. It's in line with apostolic teaching. Right? He's got a depth of understanding of doctrine, of how that relates to life. In his own personal life, he holds firm to it. This is, these aren't just ideas. These are uh, truths that he has built his life upon. Okay? That's, that's foundational for someone who's going to have the ability to teach. Secondly, must be able to instruct in sound doctrine. That means be able to explain what the Bible teaches about this or about that, what the Bible demands, what the Bible forbids, uh, what we know about God, about salvation, about Jesus, uh, the, the, the church, and numerous other questions. Right? Being, being able to explain from Scripture instructing in sound doctrine. That's involved in it, right? That takes time. That, that takes time to develop the ability not only to understand and hold firm to sound doctrine, but then communicate it in a helpful way to other people, right? And so he must be able to instruct in sound doctrine. And thirdly, he must be able to rebuke those who contradict it, right? This, this gets a little bit uh, more uncomfortable because it's, it's a challenge and it's enjoyable and everyone gets along well when we just teach sound doctrine, when we just lay out sound doctrine. It's less comfortable and less enjoyable when there comes a time when, uh, when the teacher needs to rebuke those who contradict it. Right? So if I lay out a doctrine, we can all look at it and agree and, and, uh, and whatnot. But then when we start really talking about the details of what that means and there are those who disagree with that and, and they need to be corrected, need to be rebuked, etc., the conversation is a little bit less enjoyable at that point. And so some people are naturally given to correcting other people, right? And, uh, and some people are naturally hesitant to correct other people. And so, you know, you've got one person who his natural tendency is want to teach what is true and lay it out there and, and kind of say, you know, uh, believe this. And then he kind of goes away and prays that you will believe that and not some not some other version of that or something that's different than that. And you've got another guy who shows up and he's, he's looking for all of those, nope, you said that wrong, uh, nope, that's wrong, right? He's, he's like lopping off, you know, uh, extraneous thoughts that are not part of this true uh, biblical doctrine. And so the, the uh, uh, and that's obviously not right, by the way. Some people are just given to being able to notice error quickly and see right to the core of error and can, can correct it. That's a gift when it's used graciously. Right, The person who just wants to teach doctrine and leave it there needs to learn to graciously correct disagreement with that doctrine. Okay, That's also an important thing. And this uh, elder that we're talking about is that kind of person. And you see that as a common theme in the pastorals. Um, if, if you read through First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus quite a bit, you'll see a strong emphasis on Paul telling Timothy or Titus, uh, be, be, be aware of of unsound doctrine and correct it. Don't, don't let it continue. 
Sometimes you've even got, he, he words it as you've got to put to silence that person. Don't let that person talk on that topic anymore. You need to address that, get right to the heart of that. All right, so thirdly, question number three, how do we consider him? Or in other words, what is Parkside's process of how we consider an elder? Again, it's not something we do very often. Um, uh, it was about six years ago, I believe, that uh, Chris Ward became an elder, and it was 11 years ago that I became an elder. And uh, so there's not a lot of change. We don't do a lot of addition uh, to the elder board. It moves relatively slowly in that regard. But uh, so what I'm going to refer to for this next section is our bylaws. If you want to look them up, um, if, if, you, if you want a copy, come to me and I can maybe uh, run you off a copy. But this is from our church uh, bylaws, Article 5, Section 2. We, uh, we point out a six-step uh, kind of process here. And not that every step has to be held to um, uh, exactly, but you'll understand when you read it. Number one, uh, it can be nominated by a member. So there's a member of the church who's watching Joe Schmo and thinking, you know, Joe Schmo is a mature guy. He's a solid teacher. Every time I ask questions in Sunday school or in, uh, or someone, you know, the, the teacher asks questions in Sunday school, he's right there. He's got a good, thoughtful answer and, and all these things. That person who observes Joe Schmo could come to the elders and say, I think you should consider Joe Schmo to be an elder. He's a great guy, right? So you have this, this, this nomination. And implied in that is also if Joe Schmo himself says, you know, I, I would love to serve as an elder. Great. He can come straight to us, right? He doesn't have to wait in silence for someone else to observe that Joe Schmo's a, you know, a, a, a possible potential candidate for, uh, for elder. He can, he can himself um, enter into that process with us. Step number two, there's an initial uh, elder assessment of the nominee. It may be that we don't know Joe Schmo all that well. And so we want to uh, look at his life. We want to talk to him. We want to get to know him a little bit better. So there's a kind of an initial assessment. Um, and then there's number three, a period of familiarization with the nominee. Again, we may not know Joe Schmo very well, or we may think we know this person, but we, we haven't thought of them in terms of a potential elder at the church. And so you kind of look and ask different questions. And so there's a, there's a period of getting to know, uh, know that person, a, a greater degree of familiarization. Number four. The uh, assuming all goes well in that regard, number four, the membership is notified for uh, two weeks of consideration and giving feedback. Right? We would like you to consider Joe Schmo, and these are the qualifications. And so, take time and pray, and uh, ask uh, ask him questions, uh, ask us questions if you have concerns, if you have observations, uh, affirmation, etc. Come to come to us. So there's a two week period that uh, that exists for that purpose. And during that period, number five, there is a constructive resolution of objections, right? So it may be that someone looks at Joe Schmo's life and they're saying, well, but didn't he, you know, um, I've heard this thing about him in the community or whatever. Maybe we need to look into that a little bit more. Or perhaps, you know, wasn't that guy, um, didn't he grow up in a, in a, you know, in Mormonism or something and, and now he's here and should we consider, you know, like ha- there are questions that could be brought up. Right? Maybe questions about his character. Hey, I work with that guy. He's a jerk. No way would I have him as an elder in the church. Right? That could, there could be those sorts of uh, objections or whatnot that are, that are brought up. But there's a there's a time period during these two weeks where there's constructive resolution to any objections or to any questions. We want to talk through those things. We want to be open. We want to be upfront. We want to be clear. We want to have the conversation because we're a family. And we're talking about who's going to be in a shepherding role in our family. And so we want to talk through those things 
We certainly don't want to ram anything through. And then, sixthly, the elder board presents the candidate to, I'm quoting now from the bylaws, uh, presents the candidate to the congregation for affirmation as an elder. Upon affirmation by consensus of the congregation and after prayer, the new elder will be confirmed by the laying on of hands of the council in the presence of the congregation. Right? So this process is intended to bring forth questions, uh, concerns, affirmations, and things like that for, for us to talk about, for, for you to bring to the elder board and us to do that so that we can work through them all. And having done so, we can present the elder candidate to you for your affirmation. And then we will uh, lay hands on him uh, and and uh, install him as an elder. Well, Stephen Duarte is the man that we've been considering uh, currently for um, the office of elder. And that's a surprise to some of you, not a surprise to many of you. It's no surprise to the elders. We've been talking about it for a long time. We've been um, we've been in prayer about it. We've been in discussion both with Stephen and Debbie and uh, us as elders uh, talking about this topic and and other people who know Stephen well. And so um, our intention was to um, that that every member should receive a letter uh, this this past week or about a week ago informing them of, of this step. Now, due to a clerical error, there were some of you who were missed in that process. And so um, I'm, I apologize for that. I'm, I'm glad you heard the announcement last week. If you want to have a letter from me or from Woody, um, you can have a copy of the letter. Uh, so you can either approach Woody with that or you can approach me with that. If you're a member and you uh, did not receive uh, a letter, then I, I, we want to get that to you. Um, and so um, we're wel- welcoming feedback on, uh, on considering Stephen as, uh, as an elder. And we want to hear from you. And we want to uh, we want to hear from uh, from you whether it's questions or whether it's concerns or just observations or um, or affirmation. We would love to hear that. And we're 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 putting the closing door on that this coming Friday. So we want to hear from you all the way through until Friday. We're happy to have any discussion. Stephen, I know would be happy to talk to you and answer questions or concerns or anything like that. But the door closes out on that on Friday the eighth and then the tenth. Assuming all goes well, is when we, uh, as elders, will present Stephen um, uh, for the congregation for your affirmation at that time. So, be praying for Stephen. Be praying for Debbie. Be be in prayer for their family. This is a this is a big step. This is a big uh, responsibility and something new. And so we want to be in prayer uh, for that family. Fourth question: Why do we consider elders important? Well, first of all, a plurality of elders is the pattern for church leadership that we see in the New Testament. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and Acts chapter 14, verse 23, talk about installing plural elders at each church, in each location. That's the, that's the biblical pattern. Uh, and why is that? Why do we need multiple uh, elders uh, overseeing churches? Well, because they keep watch. They keep watch. As we read in Hebrews chapter 13, and verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account, right? So they are there to keep watch. That's the responsibility. They, they are in the position of shepherd, under shepherd, put in place to keep watch. And that is because, thirdly, the dangers are real. The dangers are real. We've already read uh, Paul's words there in, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. I want to read them together with the uh, couple of word, a couple of 
verses that follow because it gives context and helps us understand why. Look at verse uh, Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. Again, speaking about this, uh, this elder candidate, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And he continues, the reason is the dangers are real. The dangers are real that there are false teachings and there are false teachers that would capitalize in various ways upon unsuspecting churches, unwary Christians. And in large part, it's the elders' responsibility to train the people, train the congregation, and keep a watch out for wolves. And so we need shepherds watching for wolves. And so it's very important, and that's why that's why uh, we believe in, in uh, uh, eldership, um, elder rule. It's sometimes called here at Parkside. We see it in Scripture. We see that it's essential. It's vital. We see that it's what we need to do in order to protect the congregation. The dangers are myriad, and the dangers are subtle. Right? We we joke so often that the devil doesn't show up with his red pajamas and his and his horns. Right? He he shows up in a much sneakier way than that. Well. That really is true. That false teaching comes in subtle ways. Not in big, overt, hey, I'm a false teacher and here's what I have to say to you. You know, su- support me or, or subscribe to my newsletter. <laughs> right? It's always a little bit different. It's, it, it seems to be true and there's just a little twist. It's subtle and it's dangerous. And the Lord has put the, the office of elder, overseer, shepherd in the congregation to watch out for those subtle errors, to keep an eye out for those things, to understand culture and what's going on, the lies that are, that are being forced from secular culture and the lies that are, that are being introduced from within the church in our nation. And so it's the, it's the shepherd's responsibility, the elder's responsibility to keep an eye on those things. The dangers are real. The dangers are subtle. And Jesus, who has redeemed a people for himself, the church, is the great shepherd and overseer of our, of our souls. He is the ultimate one who is doing that. And in his wisdom and in his care for us, he has commanded that his church have under shepherds and overseers who minister his protective and corrective and life-giving word to the saints. He who is the ultimate shepherd has placed under shepherds to administer his feeding, to administer his protection, his provision for his people. So let's let's recognize, first of all, our own need for the ministry of elders in our lives. I have elders. Right now I have two elders who watch out for my soul. We need those. We need people to watch out for us. And so let's recognize our own need for the ministry of elders in the church broadly and in our lives personally. I'm from Fallon too. That's hard, right? Because I'm pretty independent, right? And God in his wisdom understands about us that we are sheep. We may be independent sheep. We're still sheep, vulnerable, weak, prone to wander off by ourselves and get stuck in the mud. And we need shepherds 
and God has given us shepherds. So let's recognize our need for that. Secondly, let's pray for others in our congregation who might have the desire, who might have these kinds of qualifications, who might like to pursue eldership. They think maybe this is what the Lord would have for them. Pray for them. Pray that God would strengthen them. Pray that they would understand themselves truly, that they would grow in their understanding of of God's Word, that they would grow in grace and, and in the knowledge of Christ. So pray for others. And let's praise God that He, in His wisdom, has seen fit, knowing what the dangers are, knowing our stature, knowing our uh, proneness to wander, our own weakness, that He, in His wisdom, has seen fit to govern and to protect His church in such a way as installing elders, a plurality of them who will watch out for us. And though your elders, like all other elders, are just fallen and frail men, yet God has worked in us and He has placed this congregation and these elders together as a team. That's the means by which Jesus is building His church and He says the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So let's praise God that He has put this arrangement together, not just not just on paper, not just conceptually, but here at Parkside, this congregation and these elders for that purpose. And then finally, we come to the Lord's Supper. Take your elements. We've been talking about shepherds. We've been talking about under-shepherds, which, of course, reminds us of Jesus' words, John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the good shepherd, and how does he minister to his sheep? He does so in a myriad of ways. But he does so in the giving of his own life. The laying down of his own life for the sheep. And so as we come to the end of our time today and we come to the Lord's Supper, that's really what we're focusing on is what Christ has done in redeeming a people. And he has seen fit also to install under-shepherds who will be the ones who will watch out for the wolves and, and care for the flock and and, and all of those things, but ultimately this is his flock because he laid down his life for his flock. So we come to the elements today. And these are to be celebrated by Christians. We who are of his flock. We who are Christians who know Christ, who have believed in him for eternal life. 
We are the ones who celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are the ones who have been instructed to commemorate His very death. His death for us. And so if you're not, if you're not a Christian, please don't partake of, uh, of the Lord's Supper today. Just let that, let that pass. And uh, come and speak with Pastor Woody or come and speak with me and we'll talk about the gospel. We'll talk about what it means to know Christ and what these elements mean for your life. Not just as some kind of ritual. First, we come to the bread. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands this, this bread that directs us to the body of Christ, represents his body that he gave up for us on the cross, his his sacrifice in our place as our good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. We sheep are grateful for the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. We are aware of our sin. We are aware of the guilt that it incurs for us. And we praise you for Jesus who took upon himself our guilt, our sin, punished in his own body. So we confess our sins. We confess our sin to you and we turn from them. We don't, we don't trust those. We don't look to those. We, we want to move away from those. We look to Christ instead. Thank you for Jesus who gave his body for us. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands this cup. Jesus said, is the new covenant in his blood. That Jesus would give his very life, that he would spill his own blood for the purpose of establishing a new covenant, a new covenant whereby we are declared righteous by you, by faith, that we who have no track record of our own to commend us to you, that we who have not pleased you in our lives, we who have sin and have guilt, yet by faith in Christ, that guilt is placed upon him and punished. And his righteousness counts for me by faith. 
Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And thank you that by believing in him, by faith in Christ, that merit and those rewards are counted to me. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What, a, what an honor we have. What, a, what an honor we have to be the sheep of the shepherd. That he would lay down his life for us. That he would picture that for us in the Lord's Supper. That we can celebrate together so that we are reminded of what he has done for us. May that minister to you today. And may you go from this place with the, the feel of the bread and the, and, and the cup, remembering Christ, rejoicing in the fact that He has saved you by His own sacrifice, His own death, His own life. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice. We thank You and we praise You for these truths that we've looked at today as we've talked about eldership, something that's contrary to um, um, very much in our culture, and yet your word says it, and we believe it, and we want to do it and teach it. Father, we, we are grateful that uh, you sent your Son, the great shepherd of the sheep, who gave his own life to redeem a people, to redeem that flock, and that we get to be that flock by faith in Christ, and that you have placed in our lives, elders, overseers, pastors who have agreed, who have sought the noble task of overseeing, of shepherding, of serving in these ways. I am blessed by the ministry of the elders that you have placed over me. May we as a congregation be blessed in that regard. I pray again for Stephen and his family. I pray for your blessing, for your protection, for your work, for your encouragement from your word and from your people in their lives. Father, we entrust ourselves to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. If you want to pray with someone, there will be a family up here to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all. You are dismissed, and please be in prayer through this process over the next week.